How many of you were uh, here last week when Dick preached on marriage? Yeah. Well, you know, the Bible is full of uh, verses that are really uh, are warm and make us feel fantastic, like, come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy burdened, I will give you rest. And then others like, lo, I will always be with you. And, and if it only contained verses like that, wouldn't that be great? Uh, but it also contains uh, verses that are very hard, like pick up your cross and follow me. And, and last week when I saw Dick's message on marriage, I quietly went up to him before the sermon and asked him if he would consider deleting that part about husbands. <laughs> and after a very brief reflection, he declined to do so. And then for my impertinence, uh, he gave me this message for today. Uh, so let's uh, read this together. It's on working relationships. Uh, uh, I'll read it, and uh, you can follow along. It's from Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 9. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy a long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Jesus Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So let's take a moment and pray together. Lord, this is an interesting uh, and difficult passage in many ways, and it pertains to each and every one of us. We cannot dodge the bullets that these words represent. So we ask for grace in our understanding and your spirit in applying these words to our lives. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Now, uh, I have uh, a number of problems with this text. Uh, uh, first of all, uh, the passage deals with fathers and with children, with employers and employees, four different categories. Um, I am an expert in each of these categories. If you define expert as a person who has sufficiently failed to be able to tell others what not to do. So I have some genuine expertise on each of these four subjects because I can tell you definitely what not to do. 
my second problem is that everyone here uh, fits at least one, if not two, of these categories. Everybody here is a parent or has a parent. Everybody here is an employer or an employee. And if you're retired, you have been an employer or an employee. And so that means that you already have some deep experiences, some happy, some bitter, some great, some painful, that bear directly on your status as parent or child or employer or employee. And these experiences have given you strong beliefs about what is or what isn't. Uh, you may be a union member and you say, doggone it, those employers. Or you may be an employer and you may say, doggone, we got to keep the unions out no matter what. So you've got a lot of life experience that has informed your view of this subject. And here the Bible is saying, uh, regardless of whatever life experiences you have, uh, this is God's uh, view of these issues. So that's that's a problem. Each of you can say to me, well, what about, uh, and then, or, 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 or what if? Or, oh yeah, well, let me tell you about my father, or let me tell you about my child, or my boss, or this employee that I, all of you have that. So uh, I've got to deal with that, or and as a matter of fact, Dick, who's on sabbatical, will have to deal with that when he comes back. Uh, my other problem with this is that this message is countercultural. That is, our culture tells us how certain things ought to be. And again, the scripture is telling us, regardless of what the culture tells us or informs us, the Bible has a very different view uh, of it. And then my last problem is that this is being tape recorded. And so uh, I have this great fear that my children or the people I work with are going to one day hear this tape and, and uh, present it to me and say, explain yourself. And uh, that's why this morning I gave my daughter $20 to go off to have breakfast by herself and not come to church, trying to delay the problem. So uh, with all these problems I have, let us just pretend for the next 35 minutes or so that God knows what he's talking about. Let's just take all of our suspicions and reservations and the arguments that we may already have begun to advance against this text and just operate for 35 minutes or so on the assumption that God actually knows what he's talking about. Now, as I walk through this and you have your outlines on uh, page five, my first point is that we are called to glorify God in our family relationships. We are called to glorify God in our family relationships. And number two, we are called to glorify God in the workplace. Called to glorify God in the workplace. And number three, God has sovereignly placed each of us in ministry in our families and workplace. He has sovereignly placed each of us in our families and workplace. And then lastly, our relationships point us to Christ. So let's start with this first point. Uh, we are called to glorify God in our family relationships. And here's a key working principle that will go through all four points today. 
Our job is to glorify God. Our task, our role, our job, our obligation, our calling, whatever you want to put in there, our ministry, is to glorify God. And if you were to go to our website and look at uh, our values, our beliefs, and so on as a community of believers, you will find this statement under beliefs number seven. God has saved us in order that we might enjoy him and live for his glory. God desires that we live holy and obedient lives, not to earn his favor, but rather to show him our love and gratitude. So naturally, the question arises, how do we glorify God? And the answer is disgustingly simple. We obey him. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And what's the first commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Well, how do you who? How do you do that? Well, you receive the salvation of Jesus Christ. That's the first and greatest commandment. You receive the salvation that Jesus Christ happens. And what happens when we receive that salvation? Uh, We work, but we work by faith, leaving the results of our efforts in God's hands. We train for the Olympics. And we strain for the finish line. But we let God determine whether we get a cramp in the middle of the race. We let God determine whether we come in first or last. The point is, we run to the finish line according to the grace of God. We follow his will rather than our own, even when we do not understand or like his will. So let me define something. Since the title of the message is Working Relationships, What is a working relationship? Any relationship that requires work to make it work. Any relationship that requires work to make it work. Or to put it more simply, all relationships. I remember in the 60s, I think it was the late 60s, maybe the early 70s, there was a group out of the Bay Area called Sly and the Family Stone. How many of you are... I won't say old enough. Let's say hip enough to remember that. All right. He had a song and it's called It's a Family Affair. And it has this great lyric. And the first time I heard it, I just laughed so hard. I'd never been able to get it out of my mind. It says one child. And don't worry, I'm not going to sing it for you. I know some of you were beginning to do like this, but I won't sing it. I'll just say the words. One child grows up to be somebody who just loves to learn. And another child grows up to be somebody you just love to burn. (laughs) All relationships are working relationships. So let's start with verse two that says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, unless you think this is talking about little kids, I want to dispel that notion right now. All of you who have a parent, raise your hand. All right, this applies to you. If you have a parent, this applies to you. Obey your parents in the Lord. And obey means to listen, to hearken, as though one is knocking at the door who comes to listen. You Like the knock of a porter, you listen. Who's there? 
Honor your father and mother, the fifth commandment, the first one that begins dealing with man's relationship with men as opposed to that vertical relationship, men to God. The first one that deals with our corporate relationship, men to men, is honor your father and your mother. So let me tell you a little personal story. It's, it's amazing that this text was assigned to me so long ago. And I didn't realize it because if I could, if I had picked up my notes early enough, I would have switched with someone else. Because these texts sometimes are so deeply personal. But I can remember God bringing home this specific text to me. Now, I grew up in Chicago. My mother and father were divorced when I was about three, three and a half years old. And for a long period of time, I put my father on a pedestal because he lived out of our home and not always in the same city. But to me, he was a, a powerful figure. He had great power over my emotions, whether I had a good day or a bad day. And there was no male figure in my life with more power in my life than my father. And I remember one day when I was about 15 or 16, he picked me up, and I don't remember where we went, and my mom had packed a lunch. And so I'm eating my lunch, and my dad asks a question, and I answered him while I was eating, and he said, Son, you should never talk with food in your mouth. And that, okay, I mean, that, that's law. My dad said that. And I remember that. Never forgot that. And somewhere within the next 12 months, he picked me up on another occasion. By this time, I had moved from 15 into 16. And again, my mom had packed me a lunch. I was in his car. I don't remember where we were going. And he asked, and I'm eating. He sees me eating. And he asks me a question. And I hurry up and I point to my mouth because I remembered what he had told me. Don't speak with food in your mouth. And he said to me, son, you should never have so much food in your mouth that you cannot talk. <laughs> at that moment, it is, it, is a, it is a strange thing, but at that moment, all regard for my father left, just like you had punctured a balloon. All reg- it, was, it was an incredible thing. And um, for the next uh, 40 years, 30 years, I never thought about my father. He was a non-entity to me. I didn't think about him. I didn't call him. I didn't hate him. I didn't love him. I didn't worry about his affection. It's as though somebody had come and placed electrodes in my brain and had removed from my memory all recollection of my father. And then one day while studying the Bible, I again come across this verse, honor your father and your mother. And the little cross reference in my Bible took me to this passage in Ephesians, children obey your parents. And I'm thinking of my mother and my stepfather and Dana's mother and father. Dana's my wife for those of you who are visitors. And all of that made sense to me. And then the Spirit of God said, I'm talking about your father. And then I just rebelled. That didn't make any sense to me. And then I found out that my dad had moved to Placentia, which is in the L.A. area. And God said to me very clearly, I want you to go to your father and ask him to forgive you. 
And I literally said to God out loud, no way. No way. And over a period of time, God kept dealing with me on this subject. Until, and I talked about it with Dana, expecting some sympathetic agreement with my position. And she had the nerve to say to me, her husband, do you hear me? To her husband. If God said it, you better do it. How could a wife do that to her husband? And so after a lot of anguish, and I don't want to tell you that this happened over days or weeks. This happened over months. I finally said to God, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. But in my mind, my expectation is that when I went to my father and said to him, Father, forgive me for not being the son to you that I should have been. That my father would reciprocate and say to me, Son, forgive me for not being the kind of father that I should have been to you. And God said to me, he will not say that to you. And then I said to God again, then I'm not going. I'm embarrassed to tell you this. I said, I'm not going. And God didn't pound me into the sand and, and now I've learned I'm not going back to Dana because she simply doesn't know how to give good advice. She's got a rebellious spirit. So I'm dealing with God on this subject. And it seemed like everywhere I turn around, I hear this honor your father and your mother. Blah, 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 blah. And so, again, after months, the spirit is so in me that I finally relent. And I say, OK, God, I'll go with no expectation that my father will reciprocate. I won't look for it and I won't expect it. And then he said to me, take Quentin with you. Quentin was one of our sons. He was eight years old at the time. And I said to God, you're going to have me humiliate myself in front of Quentin. I said, I'm not doing that. I've already agreed to two things you said. It's embarrassing to admit this. And again, over many months, it finally got to the point that I couldn't disobey God on this subject anymore. And so I called my dad. I arranged a time to drive up to Placentia, and I asked Quentin if he'd like to come with me. And to my dismay, he said yes. So we drove up to Placentia. Dad was there with his fourth wife, and he's sitting in a big chair like a throne and we go in and we do a little talk and I say, Dad, you know, I've come up to ask you to forgive me uh, for not being the son to you that I should have been. And he looked at me and he said, son, I forgive you. Not, I should never have cheated on your mother. Not, I should have been involved in your life while you were growing up. Nothing. But God had told me not to expect it, and I didn't need it because God had told me not to expect it. And Quentin is standing right there looking at all this. And we spend about, well, another 30 minutes, and then we drive back down to San Diego. The most difficult thing I've ever done in my life as a Christian to that date, and my father died less than a year later, I think it was, very shortly after that. 
Let me ask you if you need to ask a child to forgive you for being too driving as a parent. Have you been insensitive to the needs of your children? Have you created in front of them a bar that they try to jump over and then when they do, you raise it again? Are you a child who has faced, let's, let's be quite honest, a difficult parent? This t parent could have been verbally abusive or worse. This parent could have beaten you up emotionally or said things or not been there when you needed that parent. And you have every single right to be angry except this. If you have given your life to Christ, the driving issue must be what Christ wants and not what we want. In light of the cross, whatever gives us the right not to give forgiveness? Well, verse 4 says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Oh, my goodness. Well, even though I was a believer, I had some adopted attitudes about child raising. My word is law, my way or the highway. I mean, these were some of the things I had heard from my dad. And if you do, I will give affection. If you don't, I withhold affection. I was a, I could be hard. Ryan was uh, four years old and we were uh, at Dana's parents' house. And, and uh, Ryan was sitting in, um, uh, the back seat and he was doing something and I was about to do one of those things finger raising and I and I looked at his eyes and I could see that my son hated me and and as soon as I looked at him this verse jumped into my mind fathers do not exasperate your children and right then and there, I said, God, I'm sorry. you got to help me out of this. And that was a turning point in my relationship with my children. I don't, I don't want to tell you that it happened overnight, but it was a watershed event. And he was only four years old, and I was already a tyrant. So let me ask you if, if you are a parent. Have you created an emotional climate in which your child is terrorized or uplifted? When your child thinks of you, do they think that God must be a hard taskmaster? Or do they say God must be kind? Because look at the way my human father treats me. Many of our attitudes toward God are governed by the way our fathers have treated us. Many of us sometimes are trapped in our relationship with God because we think of him not as the God of the Bible, but as the God who grew up in my house. Well, the next section is that we are called to glorify God in the workplace. And um, here Paul uses the term masters and servant. And the term servant is doulos, which means slave or bond servant. Now, naturally, there are a lot of questions on the issue of slave and slavery. And I'm, I've decided, given the amount of time that's available, that I'm going to deal with that at q and I'm not going to deal with that here. But at Q&A, which I'm going to try to ditch. <laughs> but if you show up, 
you know, I may come, then I'll deal with the issue uh, there and any other questions that might hit. So again, let me give you uh, uh, some working definitions. Vocation, that's our job to glorify God, just to obey him and whatever he calls us to do. Our avocation is the sort of the human occupation we have, the arena in which we play out our vocation. So we may be a consultant like Kent Porter. We may be a, a school principal like, or a retired school principal like Mr. Gast. You know, we may be a psychologist like Charlie Long or a manager like Katie Reed, but whatever. That's our avocation. Our vocation is to bring God, God glory in that context. So um, how do we glorify God in that context? Denise Yan, who used to be here but goes to Uptown, called me when she saw that I was preaching this message. And she said, you know, I've heard you talk about vocation and avocation before. And she said, I have some questions because I don't quite get it. And so we went on a long walk through uh, Balboa Park. Uh, so lesson number one, don't go on long walks with somebody 25 years younger than you are. <laughs> That's a truth from God I want to have sink down into your soul. Okay, you got that? Um, but as we came out of that, she sent me back an email. She said, so this is what I got out of our walk. So I'm basically now going to read you part of her email. First, do my work with excellence, but don't allow myself to be defined by it. So we are required to do our work with excellence so that we can bring glory to God. Um, but, you know, we can't be defined by that. If we define by how good we are, our attention will go to pleasing people and ourselves and not Christ. Uh, we do not know how good a carpenter Jesus was. Presumably he was the world's greatest carpenter, but there's no sign of his handiwork around. Thank goodness, because, you know, we'd have it in a shrine someplace, throwing nickels at it. Um we don't know how good a tent maker Paul was. Presumably he was good, but it never says that he was the best tent maker in all of Eurasia. Uh, we cannot define ourselves by our successes or our failures, for all of that is in God's hands. When the farmer plants, he's got to work diligently, trusting God to make the seeds grow. But he has no control over whether there will be locusts or drought or too much rain. That's all in God's hands. We labor, but we relieve the results to God. When we seek to control the results, then we know that we are moving into the area of idolatry. When we labor, knowing that the results in God's hands, we are moving in the area of worship. We, can, we define ourselves by this one great fact, that we are sinners saved by grace. We are sinners saved by grace. Jesus once said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? The success idol is a big idol and will take everything that we are willing to lay at its feet, but it cannot save us. I remember once praying with my wife, you know, you're going to hear this. So she doesn't really like me to talk about her. So I'm not going to say my wife, but there's a woman with whom I live. And I'll let you make your own deductions. So we're praying together. And I'm praying that God would make me the best trial lawyer in San Diego. I'm going on and on about this. 
And you know how you can, you're with somebody and you can feel them looking at you? So I'm in my holy position. And I, I look up and Dana's got this wide-eyed look of horror on her face. And she says, I said, what's wrong? She said, I can't join you in that prayer. I'm going, what do you mean you can't join me in that prayer? She said, I don't know if God wants you to be the best trial lawyer in San Diego. What do you mean, God? God wants me to be the best trial lawyer in San Diego. I'm the breadwinner for the family. I ticked off all these reasons. She says, no, I, I, I don't know that. And you don't know that. Oh, boy, was I upset. I mean, how could she be so unspiritual? You know, and my job is to bring her along to understand the will of God, right? But it took me a long time to let that sink in, what she was saying. That being successful from a worldly point of view was not what God was seeking in the sense of excellence. He wants me to seek to be good, not to gain favor, not to get money, not to raise myself in the eyes of my peers, but to bring him glory. I mean, we have failure so that God can teach us humility. We have success so that he can teach us gratitude. We have difficulties so he can teach us perseverance. We have pain so that he can teach us endurance. And I want all of those qualities with a pill. Well, um, the other thing that Denision said was our motivation to work should be to glorify God regardless of the outcome. And we've gone over that. And so the question naturally arises then, well, why work or why work hard? I mean, if the results are left to God anyway, then why work or work? But why work hard? Um, we work hard in order to glorify God. I am reminded of Jeremiah whom God gave the assignment to preach to Israel at a very, very difficult time. And he said, I want you to preach with all your might. And by the way, no one will ever listen to you. He said, not only will they not listen to you, they're going to be upset for what you say, and they're going to throw you in jail. But this is, that's what I want you to do. And Jeremiah, just like me, didn't want to do it at first. But the word of God burned so in him, he couldn't resist not, He couldn't resist the will of God in his life anymore. The point was not him preaching a successful message to Israel. And they never listened to him. The point was for him to obey God. The warning that he gave came to pass. Nobody repented. Nobody changed their behavior. He was an utter failure by worldly standards. Nobody was asking him to come preach at the godly conventions in Israel. He was not Israel Magazine's Time Man of the Year. You understand? But he was doing exactly what God wanted him to do. Third question, uh, third statement from Denise, and I'm quoting all of this. As a manager, I should pray for the people who work with and for me and take responsibility for helping them do their best. Think of what that would, think how revolutionary that is in the workplace. Uh, one of the reasons Michael Jordan was so great is that he raised the level of play of those who played with him. They loved him because as irritating as he might be with his persistence and his work ethic, they rose when they played with him. And all the ones who left never reached the same height again. 
If you are a manager in a workplace, one of the reasons you are there is to raise the level of play of your employees by your godly example and because we pray for them. Fourth, she said, as an employee, my efforts may not be rewarded by my manager or my company, but the ultimate reward is glorifying God. See, there are times, I remember reading a Wall Street Journal and the most common complaint of people in the workplace, regardless of whether they were the CEO or the janitor, was the same. People don't appreciate me or they don't appreciate what I do. I was amazed that somebody making $10 million a year could say they don't appreciate me. And you hear, you hear these athletes when they are negotiating their contract. I remember the guy, who was the basketball player? I can't remember his name now. He was being offered like $8 million a year or something to play, and he was mad and turned it down. And, and his answer was, I've got to feed my family. <laughs> Latrell Sprewell. You know, they need to respect me. And I just said, you know, respect me with $8 million. <laughs> but see, everybody, no matter what their position, feels underappreciated because the focus is on self and not on Christ. And when the focus is on Christ, remember what we read. There is nothing we do for Christ that goes unrecognized and unrewarded by Christ. It's just that we regret most of our rewards when we die. And that requires faith. But not a single labor, no matter when that woman in the Bible put a mite, which is a tenth of a penny. Jesus said, hallelujah. She's given more than all of them. And for years, 2,000 years, people still remember this woman. Imagine her celebration in heaven because she put a tenth of a penny into the church coffers. Not a single thing we do in Christ will go unrecognized or unrewarded. And the fifth thing she wrote was, always give God the credit. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, then why do you boast as though you had not received it? Whether you have, if you have a great work ethic, it's a gift from God. If you have a towering intellect, it's a gift from God. If you have a, a gentle way of dealing with people that puts them at ease, it's at a gift with God. I mean, I've met so many people who say, I don't know where this case, case came from. It fell into my lap. And I say, I know where it came from. Everything we have comes from the Lord. So that leads to my next point. God has sovereignly placed each of us in ministry in our families and workplace. Sovereignly placed us in our families and in our jobs. Why should you buy into this? Why should you buy that? Well, one reason you're in the mix already and inevitably I remember when I first met Dana, she used to make this phrase. She had a friend who was in a situation uh, that they couldn't get out of and you had to go with the flow because you were there. There's nothing you could do about it. And so that friend's phrase was, might as well, can't dance. And so we say that to this day. Here you are, you're in the situation, you might as well deal with it. Why? Might as well, can't dance. So you are in a family situation. You are in the workplace. 
you might as well obey God in that situation. Might as well. Can't dance. You don't have any really option. Um, now, my daughter and I represent two different kinds of people. Uh, Skyler is like those people who really feel drawn to the truth and want it and just dive into it. Let me give you an example. We were at Uncle Chuck's house, and Skyler was barely able to walk. She, you know how those little kids, when they walk, they always look like they're about to topple over. And she walked straight to the side of Uncle Chuck's swimming pool and dove in. She just jumped in, in the deep end. And Dana happened to be looking at her and screamed and jumped and pulled her out and enrolled her in that swimming school in PB the very next Monday. <laughs> I'm, I'm different. I'm the person. I see the pool. I like the pool. I read about the pool. I study the pool. I put my toe in the pool. And I'll hold on to the side sometimes in the pool. And my father one day said, and I kept eyeing the deep end. I kept eyeing the deep end. And, and I'm at the deep end, and my father says, you want to go in the deep end? I said, well, you know, and before I could finish, he picked me up and threw me in. You know, so that's how I, I had to be thrown into the deep end of the pool. So now God has sovereignly placed us in families. I, I have met great families, but I've never met the perfect family. And I've met great churches, but I never met the perfect church. In fact, Harbor probably was the perfect church, and then I joined it. <laughs> that just really was on a... You know how Woody Allen has that statement, uh, I would never want to belong to a club that would accept me as a member? <laughs> you know, if, if, if we're looking for perfection... Uh, my rule is if I want it, I better not be a part of it because I'm certainly going to bring it down. Look at our careers, for example. How, just think how you came into the career you have. We're looking at God sovereignly placing us into the families we have and sovereignly placing us in careers. I've heard people tell me that ever since I was three or four years old, like David Bliss, I wanted to be a missionary or I want to be a lawyer. I marvel at those people. They knew from the earliest time what they wanted to do. And then there are others, the desire popped out of nowhere. Like me, I grew up, I wanted to be a professor of political science. That's what I had geared for. And then one day I woke up and I said, you know, I think I want to go to law school. It literally had not been on my mind the day before. And I woke up one day and popped in my mind, where does that come from? Or those of you, I've heard this phrase, well, you know, I just fell into this career. You know, I was doing something I wasn't expecting. Next thing you know, 15 years later, I'm a asset manager or whatever. H how do you think that came about? God sovereignly places us in our careers. And he does that because as believers, we are salt and light. And there's two aspects to that. One is that it's a status, and secondly, it's a function. The status is God's sovereign control. The function, that's our responsibility. I mean, we are salt and light whether we want to be salt and light. You understand? It's a status that a person has when they receive Christ. Now, the next point is, will you function as salt and light? And that's a decision we make. God does not call us into ministry without also equipping us for this ministry. And he equips us by giving us his word, his spirit, the fellowship of other believers. I can't tell you how many times I've been inspired by uh, 
examples of people in this fellowship. One of these days I'm going to force, uh, yeah, you know Candace, I'm pointing at you. She's got this great testimony in the world. You, she's got to tell it. And she's going to hide. And not, but I'm selling this to you so she can't hide. Uh, and he gives us experiences. Experiences all to equip us. Uh, a little example. Dana and I go to see Dark Knight. Uh, Dana was it in the, no it was over in Horton Plaza and it was a great movie and I, I stand up and as soon as I stand up my stomach goes into these violent spasms a couple hours later I'm in surgery I didn't have time to call anybody to pray for say pray for me the only time I had was Lord have mercy I'm in surgery but it, it taught me you know God is a God of grace when we are not don't have the time to pray, the time to strategize about what to do, the time to consult with the right medical team. God is there. That God, sovereign. And when I went in, I I didn't even have time to think this could be the last thought I ever had because they had that, they put that little thing and I was gone. Next thing I know, I woke up about five hours later in the hospital. God sovereignly knows what he is doing in our lives. And now my last point is that our relationships, our working relationships, point us to Christ. Uh, now, there's some bad news and a good news aspect to this. The bad news is that when we look at these areas, uh, we're going to fail. Did you look at the Olympics and see these people training? They were at the height of their uh, physical strength and ability and they train and it came to passing a little baton and they drop it or or you have been training eating the right foods not taking steroids because you don't want to be uh, found to have a positive test you've dedicated your life for four years and you're running around this track and you step on the white three inch line and although you come in Second, you're disqualified because you stepped on a three-inch line. So one of them, that wasn't your intention. The other, well, yeah. But here's the good news. Oh, or let me ask you this, if you're a parent. How many times have you said something to your child or begun to say something to your child? You don't appreciate the sacrifices we've made and then hear God say I understand <laughs> has that ever I mean that has happened to me so much I, I find myself not wanting to s rebuke my children because every single fault I find them making I make in my relationship with the father why didn't you clean your room? I told you what I wanted you to do. God says, yeah, I understand that. And so it, it, uh, uh, he moves me from rebuke to can we talk? Can we talk? And, I, and God says, come let us reason together. Bill, I, I just want you to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Ugh. I just thank God that I didn't have last week's message because Dana would have definitely come to that church service. 
when we look at this uh, text, we have some good news, and that is that Jesus gloriously succeeded in every area where we have failed and we will fail. He is uh, the perfect father. Now, he is the father in the sense that he uh, cooperated with the father in our physical creation. But he is also our father because he has spiritually given us birth. That's why it says in Isaiah chapter 9 that he is, a, he is our father, a wonderful counselor in the almighty God. Uh, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He has given us spiritual birth. He provokes his children to righteousness, and he does not exasperate. He teaches by example. He doesn't say, do as I say, not as I do. He says, do as I do and do as I say. He is the perfect son because in all things, he honored the father. He says, I always do those things that please the father. And the father confirms that. He said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, even unto death on the cross. And he is also the perfect master because he's the master who became the servant in order that you and I could live. The master who had all the rights gave up all the rights so that he could take on our burden so that we could enjoy his rights. He alone is the perfect servant. He is the one who could say, but doesn't. You don't appreciate what I do. Um, If you love me, what? Keep my commandments. Remember, all but 12 of the disciples ran away when he was arrested. The 12th didn't run away because he was part of the group coming to arrest Jesus. Mark ran away so rapidly that the Bible describes him as literally running out of his clothing. Peter, the leader of the twelve, denied him outright three times when questioned by a teenage girl. The religious leaders who should have glorified him as God plotted his crucifixion. Pilate, who owned not only his life, but his political position to Jesus Christ, said, I wipe my hands of this man's death and permitted him to be crucified. By human terms, Jesus was a complete failure. Let me tell you, when he was on that cross, all the disciples felt that Jesus had failed. That the ministry to which he had called them had ceased to exist, dying with him in the cross. Not understanding that by that cross, the ministry is created, the church is created, and we are given new life. His failure is the greatest success in the history of mankind and the only success to which our eyes should be pointed. It is God who works in us to will and to act according to his good purpose. 
and the and the Greek word that's used there for work has a special meaning. It means to work fervently and effectually. God doesn't work aimlessly, and he doesn't work without success. Whatever he has promised, he has achieved in Christ, not will achieve. When Jesus was on the cross, he says, it is finished. All the work that needs to be done for our salvation, for our sanctification, has already been accomplished by Christ on the cross. So that you and I, in our workplace, in our families, could glorify God, not worrying about the outcome, but just seeking to please him who has done everything for us. Let's pray. Father, you have uh, said in our word of encouragement today that we can be confident that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Our success has been accomplished through the world's worst failure. By dying on the cross, he has given us all the success we could ever hope for and will ever need. So work in us through your Holy Spirit that we seek to glorify you in our families and in our workplace. Amen.